Okay. Now, is that better? Okay. There is, a, yes, if you want to take your kids to Children's Bible Hour, Children's Church, you can take them out uh, down to uh, Children 2 and under, down the hall to the room with the blue door, and, um, and uh, that will be staffed. And then after the lesson, if you could go back and pick up your children, and the children can be in here during the, the time that we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, there is, uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to share, because we're in the part of Luke where Jesus uh, celebrates what becomes the Lord's Supper with his apostles. And so I'm going to share some thoughts, and then we're going to go into a time uh, of more singing, and then we will finish today with a celebration of the Lord's Supper, and and, uh, Phil Young is going to share a few more thoughts from Scripture. And uh, we'll finish with the Lord's Supper as we go back out into the world this week. And so there is, uh, in Luke chapter 22, here we see... As Jesus says, a lot has happened. He has had uh, some, some conflict and interaction with the religious leaders. We understand that one of his own, one of his own twelve, Judas, has agreed to betray him because of some sinful nature that is, that is in him. He has gone out and agreed to sell Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. In the middle of all that, Jesus brings his, his twelve apostles together in order to celebrate the Passover. And that's the reason why they've come to Jerusalem, is to celebrate this Passover. And we'll get to that here in a bit. But the Passover, let's talk about that for a few minutes before we go on. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, you see this is where the celebration of the Passover starts. The Israelites are in Egypt. They've been in slavery there for hundreds of years. And the slavery is bad. And it says that God heard the people's groaning. And he sends Moses down there, and he says, all right, Moses, go and free my people from slavery, and I'm going to, to teach you how to speak. I'm going to give you the opportunities. And Moses just jumps on it right away. You know, he's, yeah, I'm, I've been waiting for this, God. That's great. Now, you know the story from the first chapters of Exodus. Moses is like, no, I don't think I want to do that. Thank you very much. I'm just enjoying my sheep here in Midian, and I will stay uh, watching them. Thank you very much. And God says, go, I'm sending you. This is important. And so Moses goes down with Aaron. And what happens over the next time period is God visits all sorts of destruction on the Egyptian people, whether it be gnats, whether it be frogs, whether it be the rivers turning to blood, darkness, hail, boils on, on the skin of people, all sorts of different things. And, and Aaron and Moses continue to appear before Pharaoh and say, God says, let my people go or it's going to get worse. And Pharaoh just, no, he, he says, I will not let this happen. And he'll, then he'll say yes for a while, and then he'll, he'll go back on his word. And what happens is it just gets worse and worse and worse until plague number 10, here it comes, is God says, I'm going to pass through Egypt, and I'm going to take the firstborn in every household, whether it be livestock, whether it be people, whatever it is. I'm going to take the firstborn. And he tells the Israelites, but I will spare you if you slaughter a lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost of the house. And he gives them instructions on what to do. And that night, it says the angel of the Lord comes through and the firstborn in every house is taken. Now, how many of you here are firstborn? Now, there's a lot of us here that are firstborn. And God takes those. And, and from there, there, it says there is great mourning in Egypt. But Moses and the people, they get up and they go and they, 
they, in fact, it says the Egyptians were excited for them to go and said, here, take all my stuff too, gold, silver, whatever it is, just get out of our country. This is enough. And the Israelites leave. And, and this becomes a time of memory. In fact, when they go and visit God at Mount Sinai in the, the time thereafter, God tells them, you're going to have a festival that you're going to remember this. Because this is so important for you to remember that I brought you up out of Egypt and you're going to celebrate the fact that God liberates his people from slavery. And that's what the Passover festival is going to be, to remembering this. And so when we get to Jesus' time in Luke chapter 22, Jesus prepares a, a place for them to be able to celebrate this Passover. And I'm going to share a few things about this Passover, what it would have looked like in Jesus' time is it would have been at least ten people participating, so sometimes families got together in order to participate. But the Jews would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover, and these lambs that were, that were slaughtered were slaughtered on the temple grounds, and then they would take the lambs to private houses or wherever they could, they could find a place to celebrate the Passover right in the immediate area of Jerusalem. Now think about this. Jerusalem in the time of Jesus was about 5,000 people, and during the Passover, it swelled to about 100,000 people. Okay? So if we think we've got traffic jams here, just imagine what it would have looked like in Jerusalem during these times of great festivals. And the Roman governors would leave Caesarea, and they would come to Jerusalem because they knew that there was always going to be conflict with the Jews at Jerusalem during the Passover. And so they would kill the lambs there at the temple grounds, and they would take them to homes or wherever they could in order to eat them. Bitter herbs... Unleavened bread were part of this, this festival. And there were, in Jesus' day, four different cups of wine that were given. And we'll see that two of them are mentioned in Luke. And Luke's the only one that mentions two of them. But they were passed around at different times during the festival. And they would talk about the telling of the history. The, the man of the house would tell how the great things that God has done for us and he would talk about, starting with, with shame and, and slavery to glory, what God has done and what he has brought us to up to this point in time. And Psalms 115 to 118 were read or sang uh, by the families. And it was a time for the people to remember, again, is that God is a God that liberates his people. And it was one of those great times of, of, uh, of remembering. And there was, there was celebration that was involved at this time as well. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem with his apostles and, and sets up a place for them to be able to celebrate this Passover feast. And so you just put yourself in their situation. They're sitting around and they are, are participating here in this, uh, this Passover. And this is what happens. I'll start reading in verse 7 and 8. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And so this Passover has already been laid out. You know, there's, or at least there's a, a place that has been, been set up and it says already furnished for them to be able to go and, and to participate in this. And look at verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Now reclining at the table was a symbol for them that they were free and they were not slaves. That's what that means. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And what the apostles didn't realize at the time, and it wouldn't come clear till, till much later, is that Jesus was, as this Passover lamb, was an example of a sacrifice so the people could be liberated from slavery. Jesus is going to become a Passover lamb. He's going to become a sacrifice so that by his blood, the people of Israel and to the ends of the earth, the scripture said, can be liberated from the bondage of sin that had held mankind captive up to that point in time. And we know the story is that Jesus goes, is, is arrested soon afterwards. He is abused and mistreated, and he's led out, and he's executed on a hill. And he uh, is in the tomb for three days. Apostles are wondering, what on earth? This is not the kingdom we, we anticipated. This is not what was supposed to happen. But Jesus came out of that grave and said, guess who's alive? And his apostles' lives were changed because they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And they went out from there sharing that the good news of Jesus. Jesus died, was buried, raised for us, and we can do the same thing someday. And as Christians, we can say, the future is better than the past. Okay, That is the message of Jesus. It's so easy in our world to get lost in some details somewhere and miss the big picture and get, get caught up in Christendom. Okay, Christendom is what mankind has done to what Jesus brought to the world. Christianity is what Jesus brought to the world. And what Jesus wants us to remember, remember, he says... Do this in remembrance of me, because the Lord's Supper brings us back to what the gospel is really about. And so it's really easy, I think, and, and I've, I've been guilty of this, no doubt, is to, to look at the Lord's Supper and to try to simplify it as something that is, that is smaller than it is or, or less than it is. And so I'm going to walk through some descriptive terms that talk about what the Lord's Supper is this morning that we see in Scripture, and I'll have some Scriptures up here posted. Because the Lord's Supper, it celebrates His people. Uh, it, God liberates His people from spiritual slavery. And that's uh, what we are to remember during this time. The Lord's Supper is a time of thanksgiving. And here's a scripture from Luke 22:17. It says, After He took the cup, He gave thanks. How many of you have ever heard the term Eucharist? Have you heard that term? Are you familiar with it? That's what it means. It's just a transliteration of the Greek term that means thanksgiving. And so in all four of the accounts of the Lord's Supper happening that we see in Scripture, there is uh, Jesus, or this term is quoted every time, is that he gave thanks. Now, when we look back in, in history, something happened in that when you read like about the Lord's Supper during the Middle Ages, there's a lot of discussion of, of, of darkness and sacrifice and, and that sort of, of language, which isn't, isn't all wrong. I mean, we'll see that here in a minute. But something that's clear, that somewhere got lost along the way, at least it did for a time, is the idea of thanksgiving. When you read the early accounts of Christians, whether they be Jewish or Gentile, celebrating the Passover, one of the terms that comes up over and over again is as a time of thanksgiving, to remember what God has done for us. That God has liberated us from slavery of sin, and we have something to be pretty excited about because of that. Let's never miss the thanksgiving aspect of, of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is also a remembering, a time to remember what happened in the past. Because if you've ever heard the phrase, if you don't know history, 
then you're bound to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. That's what happens when we don't know our history. And God gave us the Lord's Supper to remember what our history is and remember how important it is that Jesus sacrifice here. Again, from Luke chapter 22, And he took the bread, gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, do this to remember me. Don't forget about me. Again, all four times this phrase is used, or the term remember is used. And that's something that Jesus wants us to do. Okay, but one of the things, again, in history, something that changed or something that happened is during the Middle Ages into the Enlightenment. Okay, there's a time of darkness, the Middle Ages, and Enlightenment happens, and science is being discovered or rediscovered, I should say. And one of the things that churches or Christian leaders did during the time of the Enlightenment is, is moved away from the Lord's Supper being a time of mystery that we just don't understand all of what happens in it to a time of the Lord's Supper is merely a symbol and it's merely designed to remind us of the past reality. Okay, And I think that goes too far. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. But for our purposes here, is part of what the Lord's Supper is is to help us remember why we're really here and the... the uh, the gospel and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We continue on. Uh, the Lord's Supper is also a sacrifice and a covenant meal. Okay, if you look at Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 24, there's a good example of this, and you can look for it and, and, and read this on your own. But Exodus 24, what happens is there's a great example of a sacrifice and a covenant meal there together. But again, in Luke 22, this is what Jesus says. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So blood being poured out, that's sacrificial language, because that's what would happen to the lambs that were sacrificed at Pentecost. Their blood, or at Passover, their blood would pour out, or, or any of the other sacrifices that happened in the Jewish system. And so Jesus is saying, This is, remember this, because this... Whenever you take this, this reminds you of the sacrifice that I did once for all. And not only that, is that this is a covenant that continues on. And when you eat and you participate in it, you're saying, I'm still on board with this covenant. Okay? In Exodus 24, what happens, this is just after the first Passover happens. And a short time afterwards, they come out, Israelites come out, cross the Red Sea, and they come to Mount Sinai. And God tells the people says, bring the elders of the community out and have them sacrifice uh, uh, sacrifices to me and then come up to the mountain. And they come up to the mountain and they come into the presence of God and Scripture says is that they feasted there in the presence of God. And that was, that's something that's missed with us is some of the history there is that when the Jews would come to sacrifice at the temple, Oftentimes, those sacrifices, there's a sacrifice that was given. There was a time of, of altar that was solemn, that was repentant. And then the family would eat that sacrifice as a time of celebration, altar and table, a time of celebration afterwards in, what G, in, in the sacrifice that had been made and the goodness of God. And the Lord's Supper contains both of those. You see, there's sacrifice, there's altar, and there's covenant meal, and there's table. And so when we eat the Lord's Supper, we're saying, I am still on board with the sacrifice that happened, and I am still wanting to live according to this covenant that I have entered into with God. The Lord's Supper is also a communion and a fellowship with each other, that horizontal relationship that we participate in it together. 
Uh, there is, uh, um, it's amazing when we eat the Lord's Supper, there is, uh, whatever our social class may be, whatever our race may be, whatever our gender may be, whatever our spiritual history may be, all of that goes by the wayside, and we're able to come together and say, all of us stand before God in His grace and mercy, and it doesn't matter who we are or where we came from, we can stand together in unity. And uh, it doesn't matter who we are, who we were, who we are. What it does matter is that we are one, and God uh, is, is, uh, has made us that way. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. This is one of the, the examples that we see of the Lord's Supper being taken in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that is, uh, um, we'll talk about that more in a few minutes here, is that almost everything that Paul writes there is to correct the problem of the Lord's Supper. Because he says what your meetings actually do more harm than good. It would be better if you not meet than what you do actually right now. That's what he tells the Corinthians. Because they would come together and some of them would go ahead and, and eat everything beforehand and the people that got there later wouldn't have anything to eat. And Paul says, how does that demonstrate unity? How does that demonstrate being one? When you eat, you, 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 sell, you participate in the Lord's Supper, you need to eat it together because this is a relationship that all of you are participating in together. And not only here, but across our great state of Montana, across our nation and around the world, there's people that are participating in the Lord's Supper all the way around the clock. Um, analogy that I heard or an illustration that someone gave once that I, I've thought about and I, I think it's helpful for me to think about is all throughout the day, somewhere in the world, there's someone participating. And so if we just think visually or, or mentally about a, a table that is goes around our globe, that people are participating continually. And so even when we are out doing whatever at 3 p.m. this afternoon, there's someone that's participating in the Lord's Supper that we can be with them in spirit in some form or fashion. Uh, people around the world, people in uh, abject poverty, in the, the darkest places in Africa, and people in, uh, in, in across the spectrum, wherever. Uh, people that are, um, are hurting, people that are in places of, of celebration, whatever the place may be in life. People that are wrestling through sin and leaving it behind, people that are that are struggling with it, is that all of us are walking through this together when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is also a communion and a fellowship with Jesus. Now, there is uh, the scripture that, that I have here from chapter 22, verse 16 of Luke. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Okay, so what I'm going to describe here, there's a lot more scripture that I could walk through with this, and, and there's books written about this, and so we can talk about this more if you'd like to. But think about it this way. Okay, there was a time, and, and within Christendom, the grand scheme of Christendom, okay, through the Middle Ages and, and even today, there's some that will say, what happens in the Lord's Supper with the bread and the fruit of the vine is so powerful that Jesus' presence lives in that, and when we take it, there's power that, that exists there. Okay? Now, during the, the Enlightenment, the other side was taken. There was the pendulum swing to the other side. was that, no, 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 the Lord's Supper, the bread, and the fruit of the vine or wine, all that is is just they're, they're elements that show a greater reality somewhere out there of, of what God did, and they're designed to help us remember that. But there's, there's nothing necessarily spectacular or supernatural that happens during the time of the Lord's Supper. Okay? 
Now, I'm going to take a time out there. We'll come back to this analogy, but I want to talk about baptism for a second, okay? Because there's a spectrum there, too, and maybe we're more familiar with the discussion of baptism than we are with the Lord's Supper, and so we'll start there. Okay, there's some in our world that would say the water of baptism is so powerful that when a person is baptized, they're... The, the mercy of God uh, and the grace of God comes on them. And it is so powerful that what happens is we need to make sure that we're baptizing infants. Let's not wait till their people are old enough to make a decision. That's way too dangerous. Let's not do that. Because the waters of baptism are so powerful, let's take infants and let's baptize them as soon as we can so that we can make sure that they are saved. Okay. During the Protestant Reformation... The pendulum swung to the other side to say, no, 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 wait a minute here, that's not right. There's some problems with that. Is that faith cannot be separated from salvation, okay? It's impossible. can't read scripture very long to say that faith can be separated from, from salvation. So, baptism, therefore, is just a symbol of God's transforming power within us. And baptism has no... A connection with salvation, except that it's an outward display of what happens inside of us. Okay, now we would say both of those extremes miss something very, very important, because Scripture talks about when we're baptized, we're washed, we're clean. Now, First Peter chapter three even goes to say baptism that saves you now also, and so we understand baptism to say to be something that when we approach God in faith, repentance, and baptism. All of the God's grace comes together when we go down into that water and we come out and we're, we're cleansed and we're, we're clean and, and, and life is different from that point on. And we understand that that's what we see from Scripture. Okay, so let's go back to the, the analogy of the Lord's Supper. Over here, um, you have the Lord's Supper is, is so powerful that Jesus, the flesh and blood of Jesus, actually exists within the Lord's Supper. And over here on this side is that the Lord's Supper is merely just these... Something that reminds us of, of what happened back then. And I believe what Scripture tells us is something here in the middle of the pendulum saying, as Jesus says, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And I think people, we all wrestle, the scholars wrestle with this. Well, what does that mean? When did, what, what on earth did Jesus mean by that? Does it mean that we're not gonna, he's not going to participate in Lord's Supper until he comes, in, until we're all in heaven with him? Or, or how, how does that work? What does this mean? Or is it one of the times that Jesus, you see in Luke, being with his disciples where he eats with them, is that what Jesus is talking about? He's participating in some Lord's Supper there. What, what on earth is, is this about? And here is my understanding and, and again, if you have questions, we can talk about this more. But I understand what the Lord's Supper is, is it's not merely just a symbol, and it is not the literal blood and body of Jesus that we take. But when we do come together to participate in the Lord's Supper, there is something very real that happens. And there's some, something very real that happens in the transformation of us as people. The early church uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. And that's the example we see in Scripture, and that's why we choose to do that, because that was the understanding of the early church for centuries after, after Jesus uh, went back to heaven. And so, think about it this way, is when we participate in the Lord's Supper, however you choose to think about this in, in, uh, in your own mind, what helps me is to think that Jesus walking in and sitting down beside me 
as we participate in the Lord's Supper together. Okay, I understand that Jesus is here when he, before, before the Lord's Supper, after the Lord's Supper, all that kind of thing. Okay, I get that. I understand that. But there's something about the Lord's Supper that the early church understood, and I think Scripture bears this out, is that when we take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis and we participate in the Lord's Supper, then it changes us. You know, I know that in, uh, in our world right now, um, there's a church growth material will talk about how Years ago, 50 years ago, a person was considered very active in a church if they participated in the church three times a week. In our society now, a person is considered active in a church if they participate in a church three times a month. Okay, So things have changed you know, quite a bit in terms of that. But one of the things that, that pops in my head, and I know that I have this conversation with, with people on a, on a fairly regular basis that are, that are not part of churches, and oh, I don't do that, I, I worship God out in, in, in nature, and I do too, believe me. I hunt, it's spiritual, I get it, you know. But I think, but Scripture tells us something more than that. And, and we see when you read down through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, that's why many of you are weak and sick spiritually. Because I believe when they came to take the Lord's Supper, it wasn't the Lord's Supper they were taking, Paul says that. They're participating in times of, of being selfish, and they were missing out on the power of God somehow working in them. And I know for my family and, and our conviction is we're going to be gone next Sunday. Fred Nelson is going to be here. He's going to, be, he's going to preach. And man, I, I miss, I think, some of the greatest things that happen here when I'm gone. But um, we're going to, uh, to, to go away for spring break, drive on Saturday. And what will happen Sunday morning is my family will get up and we'll wander into a church building in Moab, Utah, and no, have no idea who on earth anybody is there and go and participate in the Lord's Supper because I've become so convinced, wherever we are, try to find churches to participate because there's something powerful happens at the Lord's Supper that transforms us and changes us. And I can't explain it any other way. But as Jesus said, I'm going to be, I'll take this with you in the kingdom anew. And he is here, he's with us when we, uh, when we, uh, commune, we have communion and fellowship. And maybe it's just a little bit of what it will look like when we sit around the table in heaven with God as things are supposed to be someday. Um, proclamation and pray and promise. We proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. That is the promise that Jesus is going to return and he's going to come back and he's going to take us to be with him in a place that is uh, beyond any of our imaginations. Um, I... Uh, I did some thinking, and some of these things that I, it just dawned on me this week is that there's part of me that thinks when I, when I go back, because the question came up here recently, is the Lord's Supper, does it look like how we do it? Does it look like how the early church did? And my answer is, well, sort of, kind of, yeah, mm, I don't know. Okay, is that clear enough? Because when you read, the, there, there's some diversity even in the second century, whether it was part of a larger meal or it wasn't. And from place to place, it was different, even early on. Okay, And so here's a few things just to think about and that are helpful for me. Is I know that uh, how we participate in the Lord's Supper and how we celebrate it, there's, there's always, for me and I think for all of us, would be, boy, the Lord's Supper could be so much different or, or could be so much powerful or meaningful, or, you know, whatever. Maybe you know, we, we wrestle with that sometimes. But I want us to, to think about this. You think about the original Passover where Jesus was participating, what we call the Lord's Supper now, and uh, what we just read in, in Luke chapter 22. 
I imagine that as Jesus is sitting there or, or leaning there, taking the position of a, a person who is free and not serving anybody else, I wonder how uncomfortable it was for Jesus and the group in general as Jesus knows very well that one of his people in the room right there is going to betray him. And I wonder how uncomfortable it was for, for Jesus to look at his disciples and see, oh man, I'm about to go to the cross and they're still arguing about who is most important. And how uncomfortable it was for them to sit, for Jesus to sit, to, to get out of his position of being a free person and take the position of a slave and to wash their feet. And I imagine at the time of the Lord's Supper, at the time of this particular Passover, I would imagine that everybody left that night thinking, boy, this is one to forget. <laughs> this is one that will not be one to remember because we are this hot mess, all of us, honestly, and we don't have anything together. Or I think about Corinthians, and when Paul uh, addresses the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and read through that, your meetings do more harm than good. This is what you're supposed to be doing. However, all of you, some of you are eating ahead of time, some of you are eating later. This is a mess. You guys are a mess, okay? And what it got me thinking about is, the future reality is someday we're going to eat in God's presence and all of us be in a place of unity and, and it's going to be amazing. But if Jesus and his disciples were a mess as they took the Lord's Supper and the Corinthians were a mess, then I think the reality is that probably we're going to have shortcomings in how we participate in the Lord's Supper. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a reality for us who are in process. We're already part of the kingdom of God and already being transformed, but we're not what we're going to be someday when we come into the presence of God. And so I know that there's always a tension, and everywhere I've been, there's a tension for, for some that would say, boy, I would love silence during the Lord's Supper. I would love for it to be quieter. And boy, when children scream during the Lord's Supper, it breaks my, my, where, where my head is at. And others that would say, I would love it if we could sit around the table and eat with a, with a, with a larger meal and where we could have kids screaming all over the place because that's family, that's who we are. And there's some that would tend towards more of the ritual side and there were some that would tend towards more of the meal side. There's some that would focus more on the sacrifice side. There's some that would focus more on the celebration side. And I believe all of us are right, okay? That's the point, is that the Lord's Supper is not this or that. It's all of the above. And so when we participate and we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, let's remember this, is that we are coming together to eat with Jesus and to do so in unity and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. I think about, as Jesus walked out of that Passover meal, knowing that he was going to go into the garden, that he's going to be arrested shortly afterwards. I have to think that Jesus would have been thinking, <laughs> because he is God, I know that someday these words, what happened there tonight in this Passover, is going to change people's lives all over the world. And their lives are going to be transformed because they're going to remember me. And so when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we have the opportunity to think, boy, someday we're going to sit around a table with God in a place that is beyond what I can imagine, even more beautiful than the Galton Valley. 
And it's going to be good being in the presence of God. As a church leader almost 500 years ago said this, and I'm going to end with this, and after I read this, uh, Delbert will come on down, lead us in a time of singing, and then uh, we will uh, finish with the Lord's Supper and prayers today. But this uh, is something, again, written about 500 years ago that I can relate to. I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for me, for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I'd rather experience it than understand it. Let's sing together.